Every business should have access to high-speed internet, no matter where they are. But getting fast speeds in rural Canada hasn't always been easy, which meant less reliability, scalability, and connectivity. ExploreNet Enterprise Solutions has the network to help you do business virtually anywhere in Canada. With extensive fiber, fixed wireless, and satellite networks, we're bringing the high speeds of the big city to small towns, to tiny towns, and even no towns. No matter your business size or location, get connected today with ExploreNet Enterprise Solutions. Are you ready to clear a new path? Welcome to Clearing a New Path podcast, a space for the underrepresented voices of women entrepreneurs in rural Canada. I'm your host, Shauna Ray. Each episode, guests will speak authentic truth because it's the truth that connects us. Each one inspires us all to take up space within our own communities and within the business world, reminding us that each path can be messy and unique. Join us on the journey, clearing a new path. Chelsea Major is a Master's of Science student at the School of Environmental Design and Rural Development at the University of Guelph. She holds a Master of Arts degree in Geography, Environment, and Geomatic, and a Bachelor of Arts degree in International Development from the University of Guelph. During her studies, she has worked on research on future food production pathways, the sociocultural values surrounding berry picking in Newfoundland, and Indigenous Food Sovereignty. Currently, she is working with Dr. Sherry Longboat and Dr. Sylvia Sarapura on the gendered impacts of mining operations on Indigenous communities and the involvement of Indigenous women in mining-related consultations and negotiations. During our conversation, my precocious 15-year-old dog Lola decided to make an appearance. Apologies for the distraction but she does eventually settle down. Okay, Chelsea, where do you hail from? Where in rural or remote Canada are you? Um, right now I'm in Caledonia, Ontario, so not too far um, from Hamilton, but I grew up in Maberly, Ontario, so about an hour between uh, Kingston and Ottawa. Those are the most recognizable places nearby for probably our listeners. I loved growing up rurally on a farm, like our backfield was my like playground. I loved that sort of life. And yeah, that's how I see myself in the future. Me and my partner are actually moving to Mount Forest soon, so staying in rural Ontario, but (laughs) definitely shifting all over the place. Well, how did you get interested in following your education in rural studies? Like I said, I loved growing up early, but then I was always told, obviously, I I needed to move away to go to university, which I was originally pretty sad about. 
but I went to Guelph, so it doesn't feel too big of a city. It's a very, very nice kind of transition. And I pursued a bachelor's of arts in international development. And they have uh, different areas of concentration for that program. And I did environment and development. So I was always kind of interested in geography and environmental sustainability. And that led me to do a master's of arts in geography, also at Guelph. And there I focus kind of on agriculture and food studies. So my advisor then was Dr. Evan Fraser. So he does a lot of work in that area, as well as Dr. Faisal Mula. And he does work, um, a lot of work in Newfoundland on wild berries. So that's what my thesis was about there. So exploring Newfoundland and its potential for a wild lowbush blueberry industry because it has a lot of naturally occurring wild lowbush blueberries, but it's very like, I think it, at the time had like less than 10 farms. So it's not a big player in the industry. So exploring maybe why that was or and how it could be improved. And then also looking at the socio-cultural values uh, local to Newfoundland associate with berry picking and blueberries. So it was, it was really interesting and I got to go there for a bit. So that was fun. But also during the geography program, we uh, we do coursework and I we only had to take five courses. I took, I think, two of them in the Rural Planning and Development Program. And both of them were in Indigenous-related studies. So one was Indigenous Experiences and Relations and the other Indigenous Community Planning and both with Dr. Sherry Longboat. So I really um, enjoyed those topics. And I, I honestly didn't know about the Rural Planning and Development Program despite being an undergraduate student at Guelph. So um, that really opened my eyes to that. And I was like, oh, like, darn, like, I should be in that program. But I wanted to finish my master's in uh, geography. And then I was like, okay, well, I know what I want to do. It was COVID. I was like, well, it's gonna be hard to get a job or anything right now. So just go straight for it. And I did the program. And I actually just finished um, beginning of April. So now I'm looking for my first planning job. So that's exciting. <laughs> well, congratulations. Can you talk about your studies. I mean, talk about yeah. how you came upon this particular topic and mm-hmm. what you found. Yeah, sure. So during coursework with Dr. Sherry Longboat, I, I did a paper on Indigenous food sovereignty as decolonization. So we did some work on that. And uh, we presented at CAFS, which is the Canadian Association of Food Studies. Um, conference in BC. So we kind of started collaborating then. And when I wanted to pursue the Rural Planning and Development Program, Sherry offered me a research assistant position. And she was looking at uh, kind of how Indigenous women are involved in like mind community relationships, I guess, and like the impacts of extractive industries on Indigenous women. So what we were kind of doing and it changed a lot because of COVID like ideally we would have actually gone into communities and done research with community members but that wasn't really an option during kind of isolation times so we kind of rejigged things and did a literature review and we wanted to look at the gender dimensions of research development so with respect to how impacts and benefit benefits are distributed along gender lines And then we also wanted to look at how gendered indigenous representation in crown community consultations kind of played out and environmental impact assessment and impact benefit agreements. 
those are kind of the three main driving mechanisms behind like formal mind community relations in Canada. So those are kind of our key research questions. And it's part of a a book that we're hoping to get published soon. So it's a chapter in a book with um, our team at uh, Global Minerals Local Communities. So that's kind of our lab group name. Um, yeah, we don't actually have a a publication date yet, but we're in kind of the process of getting it reviewed by editors and bringing everything together. So that's kind of how it all started. And what did you find? What were the findings of your research? Sure. Uh, (laughs) That's a really big question. Of course. So the social, environmental, and economic changes that mining trigger are generally largely investigated at the community level, and they don't really consider how gender influences how women and men access, negotiate, and experience both the positive and negative changes generated by mining development. So there's kind of a blindness to gender that renders these disproportionate impacts on women or men invisible and can kind of prevent inclusive and equitable access to any potential development opportunities from uh, extractive industries. So we wanted to like apply a gendered lens to better understand the realities of Indigenous women's experiences in these contexts. So we uh, looked through the literature and we kind of divided what we found into categories. So we looked at kind of the economic impacts and found that like research suggests that indigenous women are less likely to benefit from any economic opportunities posed by mining operations. And they're actually more likely to experience negative repercussions. So often indigenous women are overrepresented in low paying precarious jobs. So maybe like cleaning jobs and they're not really considered for uh, like apprentice positions or even administrative positions. So it's a lot of the more low paying and precarious positions. And these like kind of stem also just from the training opportunities that are provided to Indigenous youth kind of pigeonhole uh, youth based on their genders and like kind of what they're trained. Um, there's also rotational shift work of like mining work um, that can make it really difficult for women's participation, especially because they often kind of uh, carry the carry the majority of the kind of burden of child care and those sorts of things. So it can be really hard to juggle that. And there's often a lack of child care services. So there, there's not a lot of supports to women, uh, especially Indigenous women working in mines. Um, so that's kind of the economic side. And what can happen then is that there can be an imbalance in like financial independence especially if mines are co-located in communities. So if they're they're nearby to indigenous communities, that's thought to potentially bring benefits. Like you might have infrastructure upgrades, people using nearby businesses, things like that. But also it often comes with inflation. And if indigenous women aren't participating in these higher paying jobs the way maybe men in their community are, then they're definitely shouldering that burden a lot more. So it can make it difficult. And it can also put them in precarious situations in their relationships. If they're like dependent on their partner financially, it can lead them to stay in relationships that may be dangerous and things like that. So there is also a lot of inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women. They have 
some other calls to action are specifically targeted towards the resource industry because they recognize that there are risks here to Indigenous women's health and safety from um, extractive industries. And then we also look at kind of the socio-cultural impacts. So especially within with uh, minds opening in their in Indigenous traditional territories. Rotational shift work can also put stress on family dynamics. So when one partner leaves for several weeks work at a time, it increases pressure placed on the partner who remains at home, which is often women. And then when their partners do return home, it's often very like tiring work. And so they can be drained and have little capacity to engage with their families. And that can cause a lot of tension and feelings of neglect. So it can kind of threaten those social bonds and relationships. Also, when mines are co-located in Indigenous communities, we often have an influx of people from outside of the community and primarily men. And this can create kind of a dangerous culture where these people might behave differently than they would at home. They don't have the same kind of social fabric that maybe guides some of their behaviors then. So it can also like create situations of, I guess, increased potential for violence and abuse. So yeah, especially if people are staying in mine camps, so um, they're really close to these communities. And sometimes, especially if women are working in like cleaning, like if that's their role, then they're put directly into um, like bunk rooms with men and just there's a lot of potential for <laughs> that to go poorly. Um, and then there's also like subsistence activities. This, the importance of subsist subsistence activities can be reduced when there's this influx of kind of the market-based economy with um, the mine coming in and that sort of work being prioritized over subsistence, which can erode culture and social networks between family and community members, which again are important. Um, kind of protective factors for women. So, and also subsistence work is often kind of a women-centered role. So when that's kind of lessened, it can have, again, negative impacts. So I think that's the bulk for sociocultural. And then there's also political, I think, is the final sphere we looked at. So just um, exploring how Indigenous women are often underrepresented in consultation and negotiation processes. So within Canada, these processes generally include like Crown community consultations, so the Crown being the government, um, and then environmental impact assessments, which are now uh, just described as impact assessment, um, and then impact benefit agreements. So those are uh, like contracts between a community and companies on kind of what sort of benefits that they will accrue from a mine coming in and suspected um, impacts to the community. So trying to kind of balance those better to have uh, better outcomes from for the community. So we looked at those kind of three, well, the literature on those three things. And we kind of found that Indigenous women and men don't begin the relationships with these processes in positions of equal political and economic power. So if we look at the duty to consult, um, it generally promotes the banned councils as a primary legitimate authority over indigenous communities. And this has gendered implications. So until about, uh, I think it's 1951, 
The Indian Act prohibited uh, women from becoming chiefs and band counselors and dispossessed women of their status if they married a non-Indian. So those who did regain status with subsequent amendments to the Indian Act often met resistance to their reintegration from Indian Act bans. So there's kind of a systemic gender discrimination that has had downstream effects resulting in the low political representation of women in band councils. And so their marginalization from negotiations that focuses on band councils as like the main target for negotiation processes. And similarly for like literature on impact assessment, uh, it also generally finds that indigenous women are often marginalized from that process as well. And when included, key concerns and points raised by indigenous women's groups often don't actually materialize in final reports and recommendations. Though um, the recent Impact Assessment Act has incorporated gender-based analysis plus. Um, so there is some hope that that might figure out positive changes, but it's pretty recent. So there's not really any research I'm aware of that has looked into that yet, but it's definitely going to be coming. In terms of impact benefit agreements, uh, these can be kind of tricky to study because they're kept confidential. It's just challenging to see how participation and outcomes materialize from that. So, so far, kind of that body of literature is limited, but because of the regulatory kind of function of impact benefit agreements overlaps with environmental assessment, the literature on these two things kind of overlaps. So we can draw, I mean, we can draw some assumptions from what findings have suggested about EAs. It sounds like very negative what I've said so far. So it is important to kind of highlight that Indigenous women have played critical roles as chief negotiators, as well as in steering the negotiation agenda and several negotiation processes. So there is like evidence suggesting that women are increasingly appearing in these roles. It's just that whether or not their participation is actually materializing in positive changes is kind of harder to say at this point. And there's not really a sufficient literature around it. So those are kind of, I guess, what we found in general based on uh, our review of the literature so far. What was your goal going into this research? What did you want to do at the end? What did you want to accomplish? Or what did you want to raise awareness about with the outcome of your research? I would say like the kind of goal was to bring all of this literature together into one place to increase understanding of how these impacts of extractive industries are different along gendered lines and kind of find ways forward. So mostly what we've come up with is just areas for future future research and just echoing what's been found because we didn't do our own primary research. We're mostly reviewing what's what's been said already. So kind of ways forward would be to um, like shift current focus of hiring strategies um, towards increasing training opportunities for women and youth, creating gender and culturally sensitive workplace safety strategies, and just challenging the masculine culture of the industry, providing child care and elder care services, as well as social support. So kind of just very things that are, I guess, echoed in the literature, I would say. And just kind of bring awareness more to to the general public of being, I mean, we hear a lot in the news about impact assessment and environmental studies, 
uh, probably less less about impact benefit agreements. And these are all like generally at the community level. So I think it's just bringing an overall like critical view to who's benefiting from these kind of what is being what are being called economic opportunities and being critical of whether or not these actually are translating into economic benefits for communities. And if they are benefiting communities who in these communities are benefiting and um, how are the sociocultural and economic dynamics within these communities being affected and especially focusing on gender in these kind of areas. Uh, and also understanding, I guess, that consultation and negotiation processes can be complicit in the marginalization of Indigenous women's political roles and interests in resource development projects and just being more aware of that and cognizant of that fact. I think that's really important. And pretty much just like not assuming that just because Indigenous women are participating in negotiation processes. That doesn't necessarily mean that it'll translate into gender sensitive outcomes. And so we really need to focus on translating participation into meaningful outcomes. So sometimes participation of women can be kind of like tokenistic, like checking a box. And so there needs to be a lot more um, focus on actually ensuring that translate into meaningful outcomes for uh, indigenous women and communities. So that's kind of like at the broad level. And it's not really for me to say what that means. Like it's very community specific. Um, and that's where like kind of our initial goal for our research of like actually engaging with community members comes in. So that's certainly something that uh, Sherry is going to be pursuing in the future. So, I mean, if there's any interested potential students listening, that would be a Sherry would be one to contact for that because there's definitely so much more work to do in that area that she's really excited and looking forward to uh, to doing. So what you're saying, if, if I'm listening correctly, is in the extraction, uh, the resource extraction industry, <laughs> the negotiations that are happening, typically, I mean, if a big company comes in and says, we want to, uh, you know, work alongside your community and we're bringing this big quote opportunity and they are negotiating with perhaps a band council about that opportunity and that perhaps there are women involved in the negotiation, but it's simply because they want to show perhaps that they are including women. However, that voice may not be heard, especially if it's the only one. And as you say, is the token and it doesn't trickle down. So I, I want to ask you this on a personal level, and I know that research is not personal, <laughs> but <laughs> Do you believe that if more women uh, were involved in negotiations, that there might be a different outcome? Yeah, <laughs> I think that's definitely a step in the right direction. I think there's definitely a, a push for that. Like there is a strong push for that right now. And there is some, some companies doing, doing good things. But 
there isn't like sort of a set framework for considering that or there wasn't before for considering these voices and for impact assessment now there is supposedly one through um, gender-based analysis so hopefully that would actually translate into these voices being heard but definitely the literature tends to indicate that this participation doesn't necessarily always translate into meaningful outcomes so just because you're kind of participating in this process doesn't mean that the outcome is actually considering gender critically or also it's sometimes I would say it's rather it's shallow like it's trying to like there's always a strong focus on on jobs which is good but there's not a consideration of kind of the context behind why Indigenous women are maybe struggling to actually uh, to be able to benefit from these these circumstances, if, if that makes any sense. Would you have preferred to go to the communities and, and do interviews? I mean, you couldn't do that because of COVID, but typically would that have been your process? Yeah, that's definitely what we wanted to do. Like, I'm also a settler. I don't want to misrepresent anyone's voices. So it's really important to hear from community members and from women. So that's like a very, very crucial next step. Like, this is just very preliminary. What's going on? What are we seeing from the literature? So that's just, that's an essential next step. And that's what Sherry really wants to do. So yeah, that's what we would have done and what someone will do, I'm sure. But yeah. How did it impact you personally? How did it feel to be seeing these outcomes um, as a settler, but also as a female? Yeah, <laughs> I always feel like it's not my place and it's definitely a place for Indigenous people. But there's also a lot of exhaustion, I think, in community members to talk about these sort of things. And so to do this preliminary work, I feel like I can talk about it. But uh, I don't know, there's a lot of guilt, which is common in this area. And just like a lot of fear of misrepresenting voices and just sadness, too, for what what our colonial government has done, what I benefit from and we benefit from as settlers. It's a lot to take in. I mean, nothing compared to what these community members and go through with with intergenerational trauma and grief. So, I mean, it's really hard to sit here and say it's hard for me because I'm very, I'm I'm kind of a very privileged person, and so I don't know. It's it's tricky. <laughs> I've done a lot of like, I don't know. Yes, not a lot, but writing on these sorts of topics and just constantly being, just constantly kind of facing this reality is very good. Like, I think a lot more of us need to be aware of, like, our colonial history and the settler colonial context that we live in, that we benefit from. Like, it's just, I think there needs to be a better understanding of that for everyone in, in Canada or what we call Canada now. So, yeah, it was a very emotional thing to 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 study and then also as a woman to kind of see these different like intersections of identities like intersectionality is kind of a perspective we did take in this too so just how like there's also just discrimination for women in general in mining too without and then obviously having an indigenous identity too overlapping with that increases like marginalization but it's just like the sort of 
violence you read about is it's hard um it's very sad i think mining is very like a hyper masculine culture and there's a lot of writing about that and it's also just a very environmentally destructive thing as well so there's this but this trauma that's being enacted on the land too and that's that's felt also by communities strongly it's a hard thing <laughs> i don't know if that answers it i feel like i'm everywhere it's just i have a lot of feelings on it a lot of concerns i guess i think it's interesting that you pulled that aspect of it out of it i had the benefit of interviewing an indigenous consultant that is helping uh chambers of commerce and she said mother earth is sick and it makes us sick mm-hmm. and it's interesting that you pulled from that that the ex- resource extraction industry is it has a ripple effect on the earth and its communities and the people that have the closest relationship to the land. That must have been hard work. I mean, especially during the pandemic to review um, that. But as you say, uh, we're both settlers and uh, not to center ourselves in our own mm-hmm. feelings in that. Did you regret choosing that path or do you feel that you benefited from the growth that you were afforded to study what you did? I love the opportunity to kind of expand my knowledge in these areas. And I think when it's like challenging emotionally, that's like a really key area for growth. I think it's really good to have kind of research and work that does challenge you emotionally. I know there's this whole idea that research is subjective, but I mean, all your values, you can't just throw out the window when you conduct research. Like, it's just, that's an impossibility. So I think when you are passionate about it, you really try and and convey those ideas and those voices super authentically. And I think when you are, I don't know, it's just really good to have that awareness, that self-awareness, that awareness of, of your country and what it's built on. It's hard to hear it's hard to read but it's the truth and that's what we need that's what we need to understand and i know there's this there's a whole um push for truth and reconciliation and there's a lot of emphasis on the whole reconciliation part but there's so much work still to do on the truth so many people don't know it don't look into it couldn't be bothered to try and understand it so i think even if like any work in that area is challenging emotionally. It, it's important to kind of to explore. Thank you so much, mm-hmm. Chelsea, um, for the work that you're doing and yeah. also for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for this opportunity. It was really great talking to you. I enjoyed it a lot. this episode, please subscribe, rate it, and leave a review. It really helps others find us. Clearing a New Path podcast artwork is supported by the graphic design of Katie Wilhelm, and the music branding is by Imagine Dev Studios. The podcast is produced by Radar Media in Temp Centre, Ontario. It is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, 
and neutral peoples who once used this land as their traditional beaver hunting grounds. The First Nations communities closest to this studio are Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, Oneida Nation of the Thames, Muncie, Delaware First Nation, and the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point. We will speak to many people across Turtle Island, and as a settler here, I'm committed to deepening understanding of Indigenous communities and reframing responsibilities to land and community. I am grateful to Mother Earth for the opportunity for love and connection, and to the spirits of the elders and the medicine people who still walk the earth. Until next time, 